looking to sound like you know what's going on in the world? Pop culture, social strategy, comedy, and other funny stuff? Well, join the club and settle in for the Jeff Dwoskin Show. It's not the podcast we deserve, but the podcast we all need with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, George, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get this show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 126 of the podcast. I've got great news for you, everybody. I'm making an announcement. We're changing the name of the podcast. It's going to be the same awesome podcast. It's going to have a new name coming in a week or so. You'll know there'll be a new introduction to the podcast. It's going to be real cool, but it's going to be all the same podcast. Just a new name, new artwork, everything. Just kind of freshen it up, kind of give it a name that reflects more what the show's all about. You're like, what, Jeff? Doesn't Live from Detroit, the Jeff Duoskin show, reflect what the show is all about? Not really. I love the name. And why wouldn't I love it? It has my name in it. But when I reach out and show people, they're like, is it live? No. We tape it live, but it's not live. Oh, is it focused on Detroit? No. I just happen to be from a suburb of Detroit. Like, oh, and who's this Jeff Duoskin? That's me. But they don't know. Anyway, so... We're coming up with a cool name. That way, when you tell all your friends, which I know you're telling them now, but it's a mouthful right now, right? But you'll tell your friends. It'll be easier for them to go, that sounds amazing. Anyway, just wanted to give you a heads up. That's coming up. You'll see everything kind of change. And uh, I am looking forward to uh, rolling that out to you. But in the meantime, I got an amazing guest for you. Today, it's May 2nd. We got May the 4th, biggest Star Wars holiday in the in the galaxy coming up. Then, of course, Revenge of the Fifth coming up later this week as well. What better way to celebrate Star Wars than with Mark Anthony Austin? That's right. Star Wars Special Edition's very own Boba Fett is here with us today. Mark Anthony Austin. That's right. He's going to talk to us all about working with George Lucas and his experience working on Star Wars Special Edition. Mark is a pre-visualization expert, so this one's going a little behind the scenes as well. It's a very fascinating discussion. Mark's going to talk about some of the amazing movies he's worked on. I can't even rattle them all off. There's so many, but Ready Player One, War Horse, X-Men Days of Future Past, Thor The Dark World, Oz the Great and Powerful, The Avengers, Casper, I mean, it goes on and on. So he's going to give us some real cool behind-the-scenes insight into how movies are made. So this, you're going to love this discussion. It's coming up in just a few minutes. Did I mention he was Boba Fett? I did. Okay, because that's really cool. It's really cool that he got to be Boba Fett. Anyway, I hope you all loved my conversation last week with Bernie Coppell. That was a special jewel in the crown for me. Loved him on The Love Boat. Of course, loved him on Get Smart. He just shared story after story after story. And of course, that completed my trilogy of Love Boat interviews. Isaac, Gopher, Doc, boom, all here on the podcast. Topped only by my own accomplishments of Potsy, Ralph Mouth, and Mrs. C all being on the podcast. I would also like to point out that the main cast of Night of the Comet have all been on the podcast, Catherine Mary Stewart and Kelly Maroney. I'm starting to form an entire collection of people that have been on things. So I hope you're enjoying the ride. So definitely check all those out. Everything is, of course, available at the website, jeffisfunny.com and any podcast app you love. Hope you continue to enjoy the bonus episodes, which pull from our live show, Crossing the Streams. Last Thursday, we had another bonus episode with some great TV binge-watching suggestions. You can join us live every Wednesday at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. Join along chat along with us, or you can just wait and I send it directly into your ears via this podcast stream. Pick your poison. I do want to thank everyone for their support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at this lovely podcast. And that's how we keep the lights on. Today's interview sponsor, Fig & Associates, the makers of carbon freezing technology. That's right. If you're looking for carbonite freezing, look no further than Fig & Associates. Fig & Associates, now utilizing state-of-the-art gas technology. Hibernation sickness is a thing of the past. 
Do you need to get your mother-in-law from one place in the galaxy to the next and only at light speed? Will do. Sounds like you have no one else to turn to but Fig and Associates. Our molten carbonite flash freezing has never been easier. Keep your mother-in-law safe and quiet the entire journey. Knowing you can rest easy, the Fig & Associates uses only the purest anti-bane matter. That's right, Fig & Associates, your premier partner for carbonite freezing when you need it the most. All right, well, that sounds amazing. Advances in technology are always welcome, aren't they? I only wish I knew someone who could use some carbonite freezing technology. Wink, wink, wink. All right, well, I guess it's time to share my interview with Mark Anthony Austin with you. Special edition of the podcast where we go into the special edition of Star Wars and a whole lot more. You're going to love my conversation with Mark Anthony Austin. Get ready for an amazing behind-the-scenes look at movies and hear from the man who got to play Boba Fett himself and fulfill a lifelong fan dream. Everyone, Mark Anthony Austin. Enjoy. All right, everyone. I'm excited to introduce you to my next guest, visual effects guru, actor, animator. We loved him as... Boba Fett in Star Wars Special Edition. Welcome to the show, Mark Anthony Austin. Mark, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Jeff. Good to be here. This is exciting. You've got a, such an interesting background. I know what the big thing is Boba Fett in Star Wars Special Edition, but I, let's uh, let's build up to that a bit. I, I wanted to kind of, the whole visual effects pre-visualization, like what, what does that all mean even? Like what is, what is your job? My job is... Now it's uh, basically pre-visualization. Pre pre-visualization is, if you can imagine how expensive it is to have a crew turn up, you know, for a film, just having everyone there is an army of people. And so with an army of people kind of being paid an hourly wage to hang around, there's no time to really experiment. And directors really want to experiment a lot more. They want their movies to stand out from the pack. And so what we do in pre-visualization, pre we call it previs because it's such a mouthful. Previs, okay? <laughs> previs, got What it. we do in previs is we create the, the movie set in the computer. We create the cameras. We go by the director's preference of lens kit. Like some directors love 27-millimeter lens. Some directors hate 35-millimeter lens. You know, you find out the lens preference or the lens kit. You shoot this expensive scene on your computer, you know, roughly animated set, get all your shots worked out, and then they can take the previews to the set, show everyone what the shot is going to be, know exactly what the height of the camera is, the lens on the camera is, how far the actor is in front of the camera. Everything's worked out in 3D, so they can reproduce it without any wasted time on the day of the shoot. Essentially, Spielberg said it saved him $10 million off of World of Worlds when he made World of Worlds, just for the previs. $10 million it saved him for not having that army hanging around for all the times that you want to try something out. And we can try it out. We typically create, we're kind of shot creators, we're cinematographers. We typically create two shots per day. That's how fast you have to work. It's just getting us, you want to get as much animation in front of the camera because the animation of what's in front of the camera informs the camera what to do. So that's the whole reason we have to animate it the way we do. Wasted animation. I always thought that our previous animation would be on like the bonus DVD, you know, the bonus clips or bonus features. And so the very first previous I did in 2009 was for Arthur Christmas. It was an animated Christmas movie. And I really thought that when I got the, the uh, DVD or the Blu-ray that I would be able to see, you know, some of my behind-the-scenes work. But I guess it's a taboo thing. They don't like to admit that previs even exists, you know, <laughs> in Hollywood. One day, one day we'll get our reveal. But that's essentially what I've been doing since 2009. So in the War of the Worlds scenario where you're working with Spielberg, you guys are given the script. How much does he kind of inform you before you make those initial 3D renderings of the shots? And then is there back and forth where he'll be like, oh, I didn't like that. Yeah. Okay, let's have the War of the World guy come in from the left more. Yeah, I joined the company, went to previous after War of the Worlds, but it just was like the big quote that everyone was kind of parading around. I did get to work with Spielberg on Warhorse and Ready Player One and Casper, but for previous Warhorse and Ready Player One. And a Warhorse, 
We were really lucky to actually be able to work on the Universal lot, 200-yard walk from Spielberg's office. So pick up our laptop, take the latest version of the sequence to his office, sit at this table, and he would give us notes and say, you know, maybe we should go wider on this lens, or maybe we should throw a 100mm lens on this to really kind of blur out the background and isolate or flatten the subject. There's a lot of to and fro with the director. Sometimes the director isn't involved. Sometimes it's the effect supervisor. I much prefer it when it's the director because the director has the overall say of what pictures should look like. And so I'm trying to read the director's mind and show him some kind of semblance of what the movie that he wants to make looks like. So how much of the movie is the previs guys doing? <laughs> and then the director it depends just imitating. Maybe that's why they depends. don't talk about it, because the director is just imitating your work. <laughs> it depends on the movie. Usually, I mean, if you look at my IMDb, it's like I've got 50 movies on there. Mm-hmm. It's usually the most expensive movies. The movies that involved a lot, involve a lot of effects or involve a lot of people or like the Avengers. I worked on the Avengers pretty extensively. I, I worked for about a year on Avengers. So we were working on a lot of sequences, but much better than having all of those stars that cost an arm and a leg to have just hang around. We got to work out all the sequences with the Avengers in the computer so that they could say, okay, we don't need that person, that person. We just need Hawkeye, Black Widow for this shot. Just need them to turn up today. So they can budget and organize and shoot everything much more efficiently because they have essentially a blueprint of the movie to follow. A while back, I talked to Joe Alves. Uh, He designed the shark and Jaws, and he was showing all the storyboards and talking about all the visualization work that he did with Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Is that like the old, old, archaic way to do it? And then this new... Previs is sort of like the new way to do the, all of this type of stuff for the movies. Because like with Jaws, he had all the stuff drawn out. It was like... Yeah. Well, we, now we have computers. So in the computer, one person can orchestrate a whole shot. That The whole... Like I said, it's an army of people that make a movie. So one person can orchestrate the lighting, the effects, what happens in the movie, the camera. No, single-handedly. And so it's very much become... It's something you could take home with you you have basically the movie in your computer we work pretty closely with storyboards i much prefer starting with the storyboard because the storyboard answers 50 percent of the questions asked and so i always start with storyboards i have to draw a line at cameras that are not realistic cameras not practical cameras i always try to make my previews so that a practical team can go in there set up the track for the dolly, dolly the camera along it and get that shot that I have set up. You can't go for like fantastical shots where the camera's doing sort of these crazy moves. That That's like a CG shot. I, I don't particularly like those shots. And whenever I'm forced to do one, I have to point out to the director, okay, you realize you cannot shoot this practically. This is going to have to be a CG shot due to visual, like, visual effect for the camera itself. You know, you can't take a, a real camera and shoot this. of the time, we try to stick as much as we can to the boards, but then we're hired to deviate from the boards. We're hired for that experimentation that the director wants to try. So we will problem solve a lot of time. Like there's one shot I did in Warhorse, a big shot that people wanted. It was a shot shot within the trench and the Warhorse jumps over the trench, runs alongside it as we dolly back, tries to jump the trench again, fails, falls into the trench with us, we're backing up, we're backing up, and it writes itself and runs past camera. We have to kind of work out how we're going to shoot this. Well, I think they had for that movie seven different horses playing the part of the hero horse. One was really good at jumping, one was good at laying in water, which is a thing horses apparently don't like doing. One was good at just kind of like trotting or going from A to B correctly and stuff like that. They had this whole army of horses. There was one horse that jumped over, one horse was running alongside. When the horse jumps this way, they had to switch to a mechanical horse to fall into the trench. I'm not sure if they end up using a mechanical horse, a practical horse, or whether they use purely CG I'm not sure on the day we just set it up so that we said you know you're going to have to do something because a real horse you can't you can't make a real horse (laughs) chuck it into a trench I'm sorry but that particular shot when I was dollying back enough to let the horse go past I went you know, in my virtual set, I went through the wall of the trench. I was like, oh my God, I'm, you know, like in a computer game, video game. So I said to Spielberg, uh, you know, we can't actually practically get this shot because they were building the trenches in Surrey in England while we were working on the shots. 
So they were actually building the, all the sets. So he said, well, I really want this shot. So if you can draw on the blueprint a dugout that you can pull the camera back into to pan with it, then I'll send... And so I was drawing on the blueprints, and they sent the blueprints to England. And some poor guy had to, like, change the set to accommodate this camera for this one shot. That's the thing I love. That's the thing I love about... I used to be in animation where you would be focused on one shot, and now I work in previews where we're focused on a sequence. So it's how these shots cut together. You know, most of the time nowadays for Netflix... I actually edit all the shots together. I give them my version of the edit. It goes to the editor. He either uses it or fine-tunes it. But we're literally making the movie in our homes now. That's fascinating. Lots of security. Lots right. of security. Oh, I get mad. <laughs> You're not emailing the files over. No. 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 Uh, so that's that's fascinating, though, because that's like you were saying, all the money that could be saved. You figured out ahead of time this needs to be built. Otherwise, they would have been on set. And everything probably would have had to stop. So they waste a day. They would have to pay those people for the day, send them home, shoot, stop all shooting for the set until they'd make that alteration. Then shooting on the set would have resumed. And so all that time out, they've got to pay people because they've got to be hanging around in England. Can't go back to America or wherever, Europe or wherever they came from. I think most of the cast were actually British in that show. They have to be on the set. They have to live on the set or near to the set for the duration of the shoot. So, yeah, it, it, it's very expensive for a one day of practical shooting with a large cast and a large set. How did you get into animation and then eventually this higher-end previs? I got into it because I literally got to the end of college and my college teacher, I, I did this general art course, and they said, what do you want to do out of all the stuff you tried? And I originally wanted to be an illustrator. So I said, you know, I've always loved animation. She's like, I rolled her eyes. We don't offer animation. You're going to have to do some storyboards and see if you can get into a college that can teach you animation based upon your storyboards. So that's how I got into animation. When I came out of college with my degree in animation, this is before the internet. It was very hard to get a job. You had to take your VHS, get on the London Underground, go into London, walk to the studio Ask them if you could leave it with them for four days and you have to come and pick it up and take it somewhere else. Now, here we can just send a link on the email to everybody. So it was very hard to get a job. I was a year and a half as a bartender before I finally got a break. But I got my break in commercials. So I started doing commercials in England and Europe for five years. That's how I got into animation. And then brief version is that the company I was working for closed down. They'd been going for 35 years. They retired. They closed shop. I was out of the job, and luckily it worked out that ILM offered me a... It, gave, it took a chance on me to teach me the computer. They wanted animators to learn the computer. It's faster than taking a tech guy and trying to teach them animation, which takes years. So you can spend three years teaching a tech guy animation, or you can take a 2D animator, teach them this computer software, which is you know user-friendly and intuitive, and in eight weeks get yourself a computer animator. So that's what they did for Casper, because they, this is before they were... Now, you watch a movie, you see an army of computer animators, you know, on the credits. Credits go up, and it's just five rows of just names going up and up and up. It's all the animators. So computer animators now, different story back in the 90s. There was nobody that had done it. You know, a lot of the... Nobody, nobody had, at that point, created a movie where the computer character was the hero. So Casper was kind of groundbreaking because of that reason. That's how I got into animation, and that's how I got into animation in movies, in a nutshell. I loved uh, Casper. Like, what were some of the... Were you responsible for a particular ghost, or...? I was the animation lead for Casper, and Phil Robinson was the animation lead for the Ghostly Trio. I love it. So, All right, so you they take a chance on you, Mark. Yeah. You don't just get, like, the little person in the corner. You get Casper in Casper. That's a... <laughs> well, at the end, they, they put us all into uh, a training course. And on, on training course, as well as learning the computer software that, that they had and getting, you know, and trying to help develop the ILM software because we developed software during that movie for Lip Sync and stuff like that. When we were doing this, these improv classes, mime classes, they're looking to see who they want to have lead the group. So I was luckily chosen from the group and like i said a, another guy phil robinson who, who sadly passed but he was a great 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 animator and a great director so one of my first responsibilities was to go in on the weekend actually they wanted to done fast overtime on the weekend drawing casper at his most happy or casper at his most sad the extreme face expressions casper doing an o shape an o shape kept doing an m 
an M or a P or an R. All the face shapes was my first job. Do you get to know any of the cast other than like the you know director? I think Spielberg executive produced Casper, right? Yeah. So as my first interaction with Spielberg was over like a, a satellite transmission, satellite feed. But the only actors that came in, Christina Ritchie didn't come in. This is one of her first movies. It was just after Adam's Family. It was like her second big movie. She didn't come in. The I can't remember her name. The the lady who played Carrigan. Kathy Morati. Yes, she came in and she was a, a hoot. Just, I, that was my first kind of exposure to Hollywood actors. <laughs> it was a very, very unique experience, you know. But then, you know, working at ILM was great because you'd have like Robert Redford through the studio or you'd have Sean Connery walk through the studio. Is I felt like I was being paid to be on vacation when I worked at ILM. That is awesome. So what, what came next? Star Wars Special Edition? Yeah. It was during Casper, right in the middle of Casper, that I managed to get asked if I would do the blue screen shoot for Boba Fett. That came before New Hope. So it was during Casper that I did the December of 1994. And Casper ran from January 94 to June of 95. And that's when I started New Hope Special Edition. So as well as jumping the suit, I got to, I got given, because I'd been the lead for Casper, I guess, and done an okay job. They'd given me the creatures. They said, you're going to be in charge of creatures. John Knoll was going to take the spaceships. Uh, Steve Williams is going to take Jabba the Hutt. But all the other creatures are going to be on you. I was like, what other creatures are there? They said, it's not Jabba. And they said, well, we had Dubaks, Rontos, Scarriers, fake Stormtroopers, fake Jawas, Land Speeders. Oh, okay, well, that sounds like a lot. <laughs> okay. Sounds fun. Yeah, it sounds fun. Get to, I mean, I love, always love dinosaurs. The first thing I had to do is come up with walk cycles for Dubak and the Ronto and the Scurrier. Ronto and the Scurrier were actually Jurassic Park, Velociraptor and Brachiosaur with the skin taken off and new skin put on. Really? They wanted to recycle the inner skeleton or the control, control rig for the Brachiosaur. And we learned the hard way that you can't just slap on a new skin because where the skeleton is within inside of the creature, it's very important to get those pivot points of where the bones are correct. Because otherwise, if your bones are too far to the back of your neck, you're going to get a lot of movement up front for a little bit of movement in the back. And so if you look at there's a shot where they wanted the uh, Ronto to rear up, nightmare shot to animate because of so much you're counter-animating. We, we learned a lot of lessons on both cats and new host of like what not to do <laughs> of what not to do yeah so when they decided to put boba fett into star yeah. wars how did they come to choose you i just was really lucky it's one of those cases of being the right place right time because i told you i was working commercials right we're working commercials and like six months before the we closed shop i got to meet my boss's son-in-law he'd come over from america I met this. His name is Guy. Guy Hudson. Got to meet Guy Hudson. End up going out for a drink as you do in London. Straight to the pub. Off to the nightclub. Had a you know, a night out with my boss's son-in-law from America. We showed his son-in-law a good time out in the town. And that was that. He went off. So I turned up to ILM my very first day. It was actually the weekend. I went in the weekend before my first Monday. I had someone showing me where my desk was, stuff like that. He took me in, and in walks Guy Hudson. Oh, my God, what? How did you? Did What? Oh, I thought you knew I worked for ILM. No, I would have remembered if you told me a detail like that. So he said, oh, he goes, well, you're very lucky because I know the guy that runs the archives, Don Bees. He's a good friend of mine. And you being a big Star Wars fan, a big Boba Fett fan, I bet you'd love to go to the archives. And so he, my boss's son in commercials in England was my in into the archives in America at Lucas Ranch. Got to know Don Bees. They knew I loved the suit when they needed someone to dress up in the suit for a summit at the ranch, a Skywalker Ranch, summer of 94. He said he gave me the opportunity to try the suit on. He did stipulate that if I didn't fit the flight suit, it's everything's attached to, it's actually a Swedish flight suit that's underneath everything on Boba Fett. He said, if you don't fit that inner flight suit, you can't do it and we'll find you another character. But, you know, I was hoping, hope, praying that the, the flight suit would zip up and literally was for me that, that Cinderella slipper moment where it just kind of, ah! <laughs> Did you not eat for a week beforehand? Did you? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, actually, they asked me, you said, you're going to have to come along sometime. I went the very next day. Went the very next lunchtime. Did this summit. So I got to live my dream, which was wear the actual suit four hours 
you know, pretending to be Boba Fett. I mean, tough ask, you know. It's fun being in a costume, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, especially when people can't see your face. I love being in a costume. I've always loved being in a costume. I got to do that summit. It was so successful. They had a second one. And then on the heels of that, they needed someone to jump in the suit for the blue screen shoot. So I sent an email to the producer saying, look, I can't tell you who told me, but a little bird told me that you're going to need someone to jump in the suit for blah, blah, blah. I just happened to fit the suit if you would need my services. I basically pushed my way <laughs> into... You hustled. You hustled to get it done. That's, I hustled. I, I, like it. I hustled to become a bounty hunter. It's an interesting scene. I remember as a kid having oversized Star Wars comic books that were written before Jabba the Hutt was edited out of that movie, out of the original oh. Star Wars. So in these original books, they, the guy, it was just a big husky guy, right? And he was in these. I mean, they soon it soon disappeared. You know, they try to erase whatever they can erase. But I totally remember that. So it was always interesting to me when they were going back to do the special editions. Oh, they have all this footage and they're putting it back in. And Well, they did. They didn't have Boba Fett in it. Yeah. <laughs> Boba Fett, well, that was something they must have just decided. Oh, let's let's uh, let's put him in and then he can be in the whole trilogy. Well, he wasn't even designed when they shot this. It was 1976 when they shot the guy in the bear skins, the Irish guy. Boba Fett wasn't even a designer at that point. You know, It was only between New Hope and Empire that they designed this character that they were going to make a whole army of. And then finalized on the suit, they realized it's too expensive to make a whole army of these guys. Let's just have one as a bounty hunter. That was the creation of Boba Fett. Was that before or after the Christmas special that no one talks about? Because there was a whole segment in that with Boba Fett. That's yeah. I think it was uh, I think it was after, but the Christmas special that's a rite of passage in itself. If you can, you have to make it through that without stopping or you know pausing. If you can make it through the Christmas special, you are a true fan. That is true. <laughs> that is well, c- <laughs> certain elements are easier to get through than other elements, like the Boba Fett yeah. cartoons and a part of it. Oh yeah, yeah, is much easier to get through. <laughs> but yes, if you're out there and you're a Star Wars fan, put yourself to the test. It's on YouTube. <laughs> So what was it like shooting this whole, how did they kind of put this all together, make the decision eventually like, all right, let's make, you know, let's put this version of Jabba in there. Let's get Boba Fett in there. Like, how do they, how do you even film something like that? I know, I mean, I know they can do amazing things, but it was just like. Well, it all starts with storyboards. It's just the whole process of George Lucas reimagining the movie to make it more like, oh, I'd make it now. I want to make it now how I would have made it then. It always starts with storyboards. The first thing I ever saw was the storyboards. And actually, the storyboards showed Jabba on a repulsor sled, hovering in on a repulsor sled. The reason they took the repulsor sled out is because with his height and the repulsor head, he'd be much higher than Harrison Ford's eye line. So they thought, oh, he's going to be off of the sled and on the, the ground to be the same eye line. Got it. But the repulsor sled was a, a great idea. If they'd done the repulsor sled, they might have not done the whole... I saw... There were, there were, I was only involved with the creatures, you know, so I, I just had the plates that involved the creatures. I didn't know what other things they were going to do. I saw them in dailies, like I saw them change or color correct the wire wings when they blew up. The original flames were pink, pulling the colors out from the blue screen. They had to enhance them with uh, yellow flames. And all the shots that they shot in the desert, they had to come up with this pantyhose filter because on the original footage, George had pulled a pantyhose across the end of the camera to knock back all the details so that you couldn't like look oh look at that and see a Phillips screwdriver head or something so we had to recreate a digital version of that to kind of make our shots match but all the shots started as storyboards so you got to see everything as storyboards and decisions were made based upon those storyboards there's one shot that I had it was storyboarded is it's one where the stormtroopers are walking beside the dewback. But the shot was set up so that the opening of the shot started with like this. Like a dewback butt. His tail sticking out. Full in camera. It was the most ugly, ugly shot in the world. And all it did was in front of the camera and it just walked away up the hill. Stormtroopers start going walking either side of it. And so if George Lucas wants this shot, then I have to at least block it out. So I blocked it out the speed I thought the dewback would be moving. And then I did an alternate shot where there wasn't storyboarded, where I had the Stormtrooper uh, on the dewback looking into camera. So you got to see the face of the dewback. And then he goes, come on, guy, and pulls it round, and he coaxes him round, and then it goes off, and it cuts. Luckily, George preferred 
my alternate version to the baldy of the original. So, like I said earlier, we always like to start with balds, but I don't like to feel like I'm inhibited by the balds. Part of the function of a storyboard is to clearly show you, Jeff, so you can look at the storyboard and say, I know exactly what that shot's going to be. It's not to make it the best it can be. It's just to be very clear in what that shot is. So our job is to, yeah, take the balls, make it still as clear, but try and get the best shot we can. Try and use either camera lenses or the setup or the movement of the camera to add to the shot, plus the shot, as we call it. How much did you work with George Lucas during this entire process? Not as much as I'd like to, because he was always very protected by his kind of bubble of people. I called them his yes men. Whenever George came to ILM, they'd make an announcement saying, George is coming, stay out the corridors, basically. Don't bug George, stay away. So it kind of like, they tried to kind of vinegar and water, try to separate the two. Uh, I think mainly because in the past, he was pounded by Star Wars fan questions and remarks and stuff, and he probably just got fed up with it. Right, he's like, he's in charge. Probably got fed up with it. But, you know, the bubble takes it too far. Right, he's there to reestablish his vision. and Yeah, the bubble has to allow people like me in to help him. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree with that. And it took a couple of times where I, I had to kind of just break through the bubble so I could get to speak to him one-on-one and we sort of discuss, you know, discuss the, the do-back shot. Because up until then, he seemed kind of a bit like whenever you see George on uh, any kind of media, he seems a bit disinterested a little bit. <laughs> seems a bit... Of, a little bit preoccupied, like he could be somewhere else, happier somewhere else, not being in front of the camera and you know, people asking questions. He was like that in real life as well. And so it was funny, when I brought up the idea of an alternate shot, suddenly he kind of like was engaged. Like Right, there's someone actually paying attention and wants to even make it better, yeah. Well, whatever he says, he could say something that makes no sense, like toast marmalade jam or something. And someone say, oh, that's a great idea, so, you know. <laughs> and so he was surrounded by that. I think if you're surrounded by that, it must affect you. And so when I came along and kind of like challenged him about, well, instead of this shot being the Dubex but how about we have this? Where it's more like having to be coaxed into the same cut point. And suddenly he was engaged. And so it was really cool, those moments. I wish we had more. Like I said, you were kind of like isolated from him. Most of the time we'd talk like we're talking now over back then it was a INET transmission or a satellite transmission. And in the middle of the screen would be the dailies. At the bottom of the screen would be a, sh- a small kind of slither showing a, a camera looking at us. Top of the screen would be George in his Santa and Selma house and Rick McCallum at the ranch. And so you were kind of very separated from George most of the time because he was busy writing his ideas for the prequels. Got it. So that, that's what he was busy doing. And, and your us doing the special edition wasn't as high a priority as prequels were, so that's why he would wouldn't come into the studio. He'd do it via like basically a Zoom. Was was introducing some of these new technologies into the original trilogy sort of a precursor to get him like trying to to see how some of these new things might work on episodes one, two, and three. Yeah, unfortunately, it took making a trilogy with the overuse of computer effects to realize the error choosing that much computer effects over practical so we learned the hard way and unfortunately the prequels were what we paid to learn that lesson you know and so the sequels have learned their lesson sequels were much more using cg where cg was obviously a better fit using practical where practical was obviously a better fit and so finally i thank goodness for that uh, maybe I contributed towards his decision to make CG so much dominant factor in those prequels. I don't see how I could. I think George is going to decide what he wants to do. I don't think I've got any influence over that. But there was a shot that I did. It was a shot outside the cantina. The do back here. And I had a stormtrooper dismounting and jumping off. And there's C-3PO and R2 in the foreground. And when I showed it to George, he was like, where'd you get the footage from of the stormtrooper? And I said, actually, that shot some reference. I, I actually made Tom Kennedy, the producer for the special edition, to go up on a stepladder. He, he'd go three steps. I wanted him to go four steps. Like, go four steps. Uh, okay, three then. And jump down. So he held onto the stepladder and jumped down. And that was my reference. So I showed it to George, and he was like, that, that looks, I thought that was real. So maybe I contributed towards him. <laughs> 
All right, so we can blame you for all that. I don't know. I hope not. I hope not. I hope not. I, I just want to do the best animation I could. I want it to be like a real stormtrooper. So. I think the issue that I had with the prequels in terms of the over-animation like you were mentioning was that it, at some points it became like a cartoon. Like it was it was almost too surreal. Like if they had just kept it within the, the rules of how they were doing the um, practical thing might move... Then I could then it probably wouldn't have mattered to me if it was CG or not CG. But there was like something in Attack of the Clones, I think, where our C-3PO was like flying all around. And it was just like it was so yeah. non-practical that it just it didn't feel like it even was the same series to me personally. No, but you have to remember, because we're looking back on, in history and looking back at the prequels. But if you rewind to the mid 90s when computer animation was in its infancy, and I would never have foreseen just how overused CG is at that time. We were trying to fill the holes with CG, you know, kind of like the way that they you know, use matte paintings. Oh, sure, sure. You know, kind of filling the gaps with CG where you had to, but you know, rely on practical within it. Maybe he was using the prequels, or sorry, the special editions as a testing ground. I don't know. I appreciate the idea of them trying to push the limits and all that kind of stuff. I thought, you know, yeah. in that sense, I thought it was it was very cool. So a couple questions for you. I know m- multiple people have played Boba Fett over the years. Does the Star Wars fandom embrace all of you? Hmm. Not equally, no. You know, because Jeremy is always going to be Boba Fett. Right. He, he will forever be Boba Fett, you know, to all of us. He will Boba Fett to me. And I wouldn't ever want to feel like I don't deserve any part of what he deserves. You know, he's my hero. That was one of the best things about. I never realized when I jumped in the suit, I just wanted to jump in the suit because I'm a huge Boba Fett fan. I didn't look forward 15 years and think, oh, I might be at conventions with my heroes. You know, just having to hang out in the green room with Jeremy for an hour over coffee, ah, it was heaven for me. He's always going to be Boba Fett. I think, and now I guess Tem is Boba Fett. Right, right. I'm never going to be a Tem. I'm never going to be a Jeremy. I, I'm just, I just count myself as the luckiest Star Wars fan on the planet. So I actually got to be my one hero. And it wasn't like I kind of liked Boba Fett, but I liked a whole bu- bunch of other things. I was obsessed with Boba Fett, and my ILM desk was this kind of Boba Fett shrine. Everyone knew me as the Boba Fett guy. Whereas like people like Tam and Jeremy, they, they've done a lot of roles in a lot of movies. And this is just is another role in another movie. For me, it's all I wanted to do. It's, it's a different mindset going in. No, I totally, under, totally understand. The, the other Boba Fetts in some ways. So I, I, I don't class myself as any kind of equal to those guys. Those guys are actors. I'm just a fan that was lucky enough to live his dream. Yeah, I can't even... It, that must have been super cool, too. I mean, to, like, to be Boba Fett. I mean, that is... The armor is <sighs> the coolest thing. I have a, I have a question. So when they changed the name of the ship from Slave One, I don't want to necessarily get into that discussion and <laughs> that aside for a second. But some of the press or things that I read where you you got into it with Disney fans over having an opinion. What do you think the fandom is like now versus then? Because I, I think in all the different fandoms, there, there's like this self uh, entitlement that's kind of evolved over time. And I know you kind of kind of got kind of thrown into it and had to tussle yeah. with that. What was that like? I mean, like, what was that experience like to then? It's, it's funny that you you can try and have an online presence and be positive and keep your everything. Everything on my, on my media is I try and be positive. But someone asked me my opinion. At first, I was reluctant to say because you never know what arguments it's going to spark. But in the end, you know, it's an opinion. It's only my opinion. Like, all your questions to me on this show, I'm just giving you my opinion of Absolutely. my experiences. And everyone else is entitled to their opinion. I am respectful for everyone else's opinion. They can have them. But when I'm asked my opinion and I say it, you shouldn't penalize me for giving an honest answer. And so my honest answer was basically that slave one, the one made the all difference. There's two types of people in the world. Star Wars fans and people that don't know Star Wars. Am I wrong? No, you're right. Right. You ask a Star Wars fan, what's Slave 1? They'll tell you. Boba Fett spaceship. You ask someone that doesn't know Star Wars, what's Slave 1? They'll be like, I don't know. What do you mean, like a slave? No, Slave 1. Uh, the 1 throws them. 
I don't know what this is. Uh, I don't know. What is that? It must be the name of something because it's a capital S. It's a, why would they have a capital S on a one? It must be the name of something. So I couldn't understand why, you know, and also it was, it's character in a galaxy far, far away. They're pretty clear about that. Beginning of the movie, what does it say? A galaxy, galaxy far, far, far away. Yeah. Far that's... Not this one. Yeah. Not this one. <laughs> not this, not this planet. Not even this solar system. Not even this galaxy. And so everyone's kind of like trying to make a, yeah, a connection between Slave One and everything associated with the word slave on this planet. It's like, why make that connection that no one's made in 40 years? Nobody but you have made this connection. And once Disney made it, it was out there and it's never going to go away because it's already there. And so I, I felt kind of just angry at Disney for making something of nothing. And now everything's affected by it. Like even this conversation where we're talking about this thing that happened. It's going to be here forever. And I just felt like they tainted something I loved. Like, I, I grew up loving Boba Fett. I grew up loving Boba Fett's ship. And for them to, like, just kind of taint it, just kind of make it this taboo or controversial name, it's like, it wasn't a commercial, controversial name. It was Boba Fett's spaceship. Sorry, I didn't, I was trying to steer not, I was trying to, like, more just, like, what it was like to kind of go mano a mano with the, the fans and, like, some of the... Oh, yeah, well, like, the thing is that, this is what I say to the fans, is that, you know, okay, let's change it. Let's change the world so that everybody has the same opinion as you. So imagine you go up in the morning and everyone you interacted with every day, all day, had exactly the same values and opinions that you have. I would, that would drive me insane. That world, the fact that we are all diverse is the great thing about the human race, you know? It's not like you can compare us to any other mammal. You look at any other mammal, orangutan, we are so much more diverse than orangutans. Every other mammal. They're making, uh, attaching this negative thing to it, whereas it should be positive. I'm very grateful that we are as diverse as we are. I'm grateful for hearing other people's opinions. I had opinions about like the book of Boba Fett. I had a gripe after episode one. I went on a podcast and I griped. And I was like, man, I, if I was Boba Fett, I wouldn't just take my helmet off. Completely strange cantina bar. Goes in the cantina bar, takes the helmet off. Like, it bothered me. And then it was pointed out to me, yeah, but he spent so much time with the Tusken Raiders that he doesn't feel as reliant on his armor as he did in the original trilogy. I buy that. I buy that. It's not like my opinion can't be swayed. I, that's why I love hearing other people's opinions. Like when someone said that, I was like, yeah, it makes per perfect sense. He's not as dependent as he used to be on his armor because he lived for so long without it with the Tuscans. You know? I love hearing other people's opinions. When, when I do a con and I'm signing, I always ask the person, I, I know why I love Boba Fett, but why do you love Boba Fett? And find out that their kind of inner, inner workings, what, what clicks for them. Most of the time, it's either the coolness of the costume or the presence that you had, the presence on screen. That's usually the two winning things, but everyone has their own. Yeah, absolutely. I think absolutely. was talking about how this self-entitlement came about, and I think it's because of the internet. Because if you think about before internet, there wasn't this entitlement that people obviously have because they're voicing it. Right. A lot of people moaned at me and said, how could you do the special edition? I was like, if anyone on the planet has the decision, hey, you know what, I want to change some stuff. It's Mr. Lucas. I mean, nobody else. No one else. If someone else had said it to me, I'd have been like, well, I don't know. But when George Lucas says, you know what, I want to change this, this, and this to my vision, which is blah, blah, blah. Then I'm like, well, you are the only person that can, has that right to change your own stuff. I, I'm all for it. So I'd rather help you make it the best that I can than say, no, you know, I, I don't want anything to do with it. And then they'll hire somebody else to do it. Oh, absolutely. It's very, Joe Rogan calls them the recreationally outraged. <laughs> the people that enjoy poking fun at the, uh, poke holes in the overuse of CG. And then the same people will complain, oh, there's a guy in the back of the set on the Mandalorian with jeans on. Like, which do you want? You can't hate everything. Which one do you want? <laughs> Come on. You're going to get Easter eggs with live action practical shoots. You're going to get clinical sterileness with overuse of CG. I mean, right? You can't win. It's uh, yeah, and I, I just, bet the same people will complain about both. <laughs> I just want to go back to the day where you just the movie comes out, you watch it, you enjoy it, you wait for the next one. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah. I watched a 20 minute breakdown of the new Doctor Strange 2 trailer the other day. <laughs> it's like every second they're like, this is, they have 15 minutes on every three seconds of video. Speaking of Doctor Strange, how was working with uh, Sam Raimi? You worked with him on Oz the Great and Powerful, didn't you? Yeah. And I actually get, didn't get to work with him that much when I worked on that show. I got to work with him much more on a small kind of movie pitch he did in 2016. The thing is uh, that they wanted everyone to go up to Detroit. That's where you are, aren't you? Detroit, yep. That's That's where they made Oz the Grand Powerful. So it was hard. It was hard to accept those kind of jobs because I'd hate being away from my family for four months. But that was the ask. So it worked out that in previews, the guys that didn't have a family, the guys that just had an apartment, they were, yeah, I'll sign up for six months in Australia. You know, all paid for. Whereas I was kind of, ah. so I worked for Sam Raimi, but remotely. I was sending my work from Los Angeles to Detroit. Got it. But I did get to work with him much more closely on, uh, I can't remember what the show was called, After Party it was called. But that's, that's when I got to meet him. And he actually signed, but he signed the Art of book. Oh, that's cool. I think he had credit in the movie. And so he wrote a nice thing in the front of that saying, thanks for your hard work. Because stuff I did for that show was, I did a lot of stuff with the flying baboons. Sure, sure. And I actually did it so when they grabbed Belinda, good witch, when they grabbed her, one grabbed her with his hands and the other grabbed her with his feet. And I thought it was much more creepy, the baboon grabbing her with his feet, you know, and flying. But they opted, I guess, to just hand. I worked on that and the flying monkey. Very cool. What are you working on now? You're at Netflix now, yes? At Netflix, and I'm just finished my second movie working for them. The movie's going to be going on for another year after I finished, but uh, it's Ultraman. I loved Ultraman, Ultraman growing up. <laughs> live in Japan. It's an anime. The thing that hooked me, because I've watched, like I said, like 50 movies, so when they says an anime movie, I was like, oh, my God, I'd love to work on an anime. It's a different style, mm-hmm. cinematographically, a different way of filmmaking, much more stylized. Partway into mo- working on this movie, I did point out, I was like, you know, it's, we're, we're making it a bit too Hollywood. We're making it like we were in a Hollywood movie. We should start to think about injecting those anime moments where you kind of stretch the background or kind of, you know, have things walk or the time slow down or just the use of camera, the relationship between the camera and the subjects usually changes for those stylized moments. Very cool. All right, well, I'm looking yeah. forward to that. I loved exactly. Ultraman growing up. That was like, come home, turn on the whatever one of the five channels we had at that point, and then <laughs> watching Ultraman. That's awesome. I did actually work on Ultraman once before. You did? Because he was originally supposed to be in Ready Player One. Oh. They changed, they swapped him for Gundam, I think. But when I did the previews, it was a fight between Mechagodzilla, Ultraman, and Iron Giant. Spielberg took all his references out of that movie, didn't he? Like any of uh, a Spielberg movie reference? Did I read that? I'm not sure. When I was working on it, I thought there's no way they're going to make this movie because there's too many IPs in there, too many licenses. They'll never. How can they ever make this movie? I really didn't think it was going to be made. I was surprised when you finally get pushed through. Well, Mark, thank you so much for hanging with me. I can't, can't thank you enough. This was a lot of fun. Cool. It's been fun uh, spending my Sunday morning talking to you. And, uh, yeah, I'm like an onion. <laughs> I know there's a million other things we could have talked about, but I uh, <laughs> maybe we'll do it another time. I want to be respectful of your time. Very cool. Thank you so much. All right. How awesome was Mark Anthony Austin? No disintegrations, please. I can't think of a better way to celebrate May the 4th, Revenge of the 5th, and just your general love of Star Wars than diving into a, a little behind the scenes Star Wars conversation. It was so fun. It's so cool when someone can fulfill a dream, loving Star Wars, loving Boba Fett, being able to be Boba Fett in a movie. So cool. So cool. And let's face it, who's cooler than Boba Fett? All the Mandalorians are pretty, they're pretty hot right now. They're pretty hot. All right. Well, with the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. It's time for a trending hashtag from the family of hashtags at hashtag roundup. Follow us on Twitter at hashtag roundup. Download the free, always free, doesn't cost a penny, hashtag Roundup app. Get notified every time a hashtag game starts. Play along with us. And one day, one of your tweets may show up on live from Detroit or whatever the new name of the podcast is. And fame and fortune will await you. Today's hashtag is doubly special. 
One, it comes from Sci-Fi Tags, which is a weekly game on Hashtag Roundup dedicated to Sci-Fi Tags. They bring it every Saturday. This hashtag in particular is extra special. Hashtag I love Star Wars because, and why is it extra special, you ask? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's extra special because Mark Anthony Austin actually guest hosted with sci-fi tags for this hashtag, which trended top 10 in the United States. That's right, at Boba Fett, A-N-H-S-E. That's uh, Mark's Twitter account. Anyway, so so Mark was part of this hashtag. Sci-fi tags led the charge as a host game account, bringing all the love to Star Wars with hashtag I love Star Wars because tweet your own. Tag us at Jeff Dwoskin Show. We'll show you some Twitter love. Let's read some reasons that people love Star Wars. I love Star Wars because lightsabers make everything better. That is so true. I love Star Wars because it took itself seriously enough to support the story, but never so seriously that you didn't feel you were able to relate with the characters. So true. I love Star Wars because of sassy droids. They were sassy. I love Star Wars because it's an inspiration. Strong people don't put others down. They lift them up. Darth Vader, philanthropist. I love Star Wars because every moment is amazing. Take it all in. I love Star Wars because of the dark side. There's always one in the crowd. I love Star Wars because it changed my life. The lessons of the six films are universal and its heroes are an inspiration. Thank you, George Lucas. Artistic storytelling genius and all the EU authors, artists who followed in his wake and expanded upon his mythos. I love Star Wars because of the fearless princess who took control of her own rescue. Smart, witty, calm, and clever. Princess Leia was a badass. Damn straight she was. I love Star Wars because it's not Star Trek. All right, someone's going for brownie points. These are all amazing hashtag I love Star Wars because tweets. And here's another one. See if you can guess who this is from. Hashtag I love Star Wars because, well, because I'm in it for one reason, but I loved it way before that miracle happened. That's right. That's from Mark Anthony Austin himself. And our final Hashtag I love Star Wars because tweet. I love Star Wars because when done right, it brings people together. It unites humanity across ethnic lines, color lines, generations, and geographies. Done right, it brings joy to millions every decade. There you have it, folks. A bunch of reasons with still a million more out there on why you should love Star Wars. That's right. Thank you, Sci-Fi Tags. Thank you, Mark. Anthony Austin. Well, with the hashtag over and the interview over, I can only mean one thing. That's right. Episode 126 has come to a close. Can't believe it. Just kind of flew by, didn't it? I guess that's what they say happens when you're having fun. All right. Well, you guys celebrate May the 4th and Revenge of the 5th responsibly. All right. Don't go using your lightsabers in places you shouldn't be lightsabering. Be safe out there. I want to thank my special guest, Mark Anthony Austin. And of course, I want to thank all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me, and I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Jeff Dwoskin Show with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. Now go repeat everything you heard and sound like a genius. Catch us online at thejeffdwoskinshow.com or follow us on Twitter at Jeff Dwoskin Show, and we'll see you next time.